The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and dealing particularly with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. But as that is merely the introduction to the section, I want to read from that verse 25 to the end of the chapter that we may have the whole picture in our minds as we come to consider the particular parts. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now here, you see, we come to the apostles' teaching concerning the duties of husbands, towards their wives. Let us be clear in our minds again as to why he does this. He is not concerned simply to give the Christian teaching with regard to a number of matters. He's got a, a great general object here, and that is to show how Christians are essentially different from non-Christians in every respect, and that this is something which is to show itself in all the relationships of life. The great characteristic is that Christians are to be filled with the Spirit. And because they're filled with the Spirit, they will all be one. And they will manifest this glorious unity, harmony, peace, and joy. They will manifest, in other words, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance, and so on. Now, he, he wants them to see how this is going to happen everywhere. He starts with it in the realm of the church. We've considered that. But he says uh, it's going to happen everywhere. So we are to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. But there is no place in which this uh, can be shown uh, so clearly as in the realm of the family and of the home life. There we are, and everybody is watching and observing. The non-Christians are watching, and there is no greater opportunity for displaying the glories of the Christian life than in the home life and the married life. That's where we're all seen as we are. Not in church, not taking a meeting, but on our own hearth at home. Strangers come in and we pull ourselves up, but... It's what we are when we're off guard that really proclaims 
exactly what we are. Therefore, there is a marvelous and a wonderful opportunity for us all here to testify. This is the way to testify to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not very easy to speak, but can we practice it? Can we live it? It's the life that has always been the greatest testimony to the Christian faith. People say, oh, it's, it's very easy to get up and make a statement like that. But I wonder what that man, that woman is really like if you had to live with him or live with her. And of course, it's a perfectly good test. So the apostle takes up this whole question of the relationship of wife and husband and husband and wife. We've been looking at what he has to say to the wives. And now we come to what he has to say to the husbands. And here it is in this remarkable statement that he makes from verse 25 to the end of the chapter. It's remarkable in two main respects, isn't it? One, in what he tells us about the duties of husbands. But it is still more remarkable in what he tells us about the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Christian church. That is, of course, one of these astounding things about this man's letters always. You never know when you're going to find a pearl, a pearl of greatest price. And here in this essentially practical part of this epistle, he suddenly throws out the most exalted and wonderful statement he's ever made anywhere about the nature of the Christian church and her relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you observe that in treating this matter of uh, husbands and how they are to behave towards their wives, he also treats that other matter, and he gives both of them this uh, particular treatment. The two things, as you notice, are intertwined. So perhaps our first business this morning is to arrive at some kind of a division of the matter, because he moves from one to the other and then back to the first. That is often his method. He doesn't always make a complete statement on the one side and then apply it. He'll give a part of his statement, apply it, and then another part and apply it. Well, therefore, I suggest some classification such as this. In verses 25, 26, and 27, he tells us about what Christ has done for the church and why he has done so. That's verses 25 to 27. Then in verses 28 and 29, he gives us a preliminary deduction from that uh, as to the duty of a husband towards a wife, especially in terms of the union that subsists between Christ and the church and the husband and the wife. That's 28 and 29. But then in part of 29 and 30 and 32, he develops this marvelous doctrine of the mystical union between Christ and the church. That's part of 29, 30, and 32. And then in verses uh, 31 and 32, uh, he draws, uh, 31 and 33 rather, he draws his final practical deductions. Now that uh, seems to me to be the analysis of the verses as we find them before us. But in order that we may grasp his teaching, uh, perhaps uh, more clearly, I suggest that we approach it like this. First of all, we start with his general injunction. Husbands, love your wives. 
That's the big thing that he's anxious to say. In other words, the controlling idea with regard to the husband is this matter of love. You remember that the controlling idea with respect to the wives was the element of submission. Uh, wives, submit yourselves. Husbands, love your wives. Submission on the part of the wife, love on the part of the husband. Now, uh, we must be clear about this. This doesn't mean, of course, that it is the husband only that is to love. He doesn't say a word here about the wives loving their husbands, somebody may say. Well, of course, that's to misunderstand the apostle's object altogether. He's not giving us an exhaustive treatise here on marriage. But in his idea of the wife submitting herself, love is implicit. You see, what the apostle is concerned to do is this. He's, he's really concerned about one big point only. And that is about harmony and peace and unity as it is displayed in the married relationship and in the home. So, that being his leading theme, he picks out on the two sides the element that needs to be emphasized above every other. The thing the wife has got to keep her eye on in maintaining the harmony is this element of submission. The thing the husband's got to keep his eye on is this element of love. So, you see, he's picking out the chief characteristic, the chief contribution that is to be made by each of the partners in this wonderful relationship which can display the glory of the Christian life so marvelously. Very well. The word that comes, therefore, to every husband is, Husbands, love your wives. Now, this is uh, most important, of course, uh, particularly in connection with the previous teaching. It safeguards the previous teaching. And it's very important, therefore, that we should uh, look at it in that way. He's been emphasizing that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Uh, we've seen that he is in the position of leadership, that he is the Lord of the wife. That's the teaching of the Old Testament and the New. And the apostle has been emphasizing that. But you see, immediately adds this. Husbands, love your wives. You are the head, you are the leader, you are, as it were, the Lord in this relationship. Yes, but because... You love your wives, the leadership will never become a tyranny. And though you are a lord, you will never become a tyrant. You see, that is the connection between the two things. And this is something which is found very generally in the teaching of the New Testament. Let me give you an example. In many ways, the best commentary on this matter that we are looking at this morning is to be found in Paul's second epistle to Timothy in the first chapter and the seventh verse, where he says this, God, he says, hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, which means discipline. Now, there you see exactly the same thing again. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Well, what's he given? Well, it's a spirit of power, yes, but lest a man think that this is something tyrannical, he adds, and love. It's the power of love. It isn't naked power. It isn't the power of a dictator or a little tyrant. 
It isn't the man who arrogates unto himself certain rights and tramples upon his wife's feelings and so on and just sits there as a dictator. I was referring the other Sunday morning to what was perhaps the greatest defect in the whole Victorian outlook upon life and even its Christianity, and it was just this very thing. They emphasized one side at the expense of the other. And so many of our problems today are due to a reaction, a violent overreaction against that false emphasis of that particular period. We must ever maintain this balance, therefore. You see, power is to be tempered by love. It's to be controlled by love. It is the power of love. And it's no use a husband saying that he's the head of the wife unless he loves the wife. He's not carrying out the scriptural injunctions. So you see, these things, they go together. In other words, uh, it is uh, a manifestation of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit not only gives power, but he always gives love and also discipline. So as the husband exercises his privileges as the head of the wife and the head of the family, he does so in this way, that he's controlled by love and he's controlled by discipline. He disciplines himself. There may be the tendency to dictate. He mustn't do it. Power, love, sound mind, discipline. Now, all that is implicit here in this uh, great word, love. So the reign of the husband is to be a reign and a rule of love, and it's a leadership of love. It's not the uh, idea of a pope or a dictator. It's not his ipsa dixit. He doesn't speak ex cathedra. No, no. It's a, the power of love. It's the discipline of the spirit guarding this power and authority and dignity which are given to the husband. Now, that is clearly the fundamental and the controlling idea in the whole of this matter. Husbands, love your wives. It's a command as well as an exhortation. But now we must proceed to consider, in general, the character or the nature of that love. And this is something that is very much needed at the present time. There are two things very obvious in the world today. The abuse of the idea of power and the still greater abuse of the idea of love. The world has never been talking so much about love as it is today and using its terms of endearment. I wonder whether there's ever been a time when there has been less love. These great terms are utterly debased so that many people have no idea as to the meaning of the word love. Husbands, love your, your wives. Well, what is this love? Well, fortunately for us, the apostle tells us, and he tells us here in two ways. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. But the, there are two definitions there, I say. The first is in the very word love. The very word that the apostle has used here for love is most eloquent in its teaching and in its meaning. In the New Testament, there are three words that are used in the Greek, in the original language, to uh, convey uh, teaching concerning this matter. 
And the three words, unfortunately, are translated in our Bibles by the word love. So that when you come across the word love in the New Testament, it's very important that you should know which of the three the apostle really used. Let me illustrate what I mean. The first word is the word eros, which is a description of something that belongs entirely to the flesh. The word, the adjective erotic, will remind us of all the content of that word. Now that is translated as love, and of course it is a kind of love. But it is a love of the flesh, it is a desire, it is something carnal. And the characteristic of that kind of love is that it is selfish. Now, it's not of necessity wrong because it's selfish, but that kind of love is essentially selfish. It is born, as I say, of desire. It wants something. And it's mainly concerned about that. That's its level. It is, if you like, the animal part in man. But it is translated as love. And that, of course, is what passes as love in the world today. You read about these marvelous romances. How wonderful it is. Nothing is said, of course, about the fact that a man's been unfaithful to his wife and that the little children are going to suffer. He's a wonderful romance has come into his life. He and the woman he's going to marry now, they've both been guilty of terrible... That's not mentioned. This wonderful love match, this wonderful romance. You're familiar with it in the papers every day. That's nothing but this erotic, selfish, fleshly, lustful desire. But I'm reminding you that that is translated sometimes as love. Then the next word is a, a word which really means to be fond of. Phileo. A word which comes in as a root very often in words like philanthropy and so on. Philadelphia, love of men and so on. Well now here is another word which is translated as love. But what it really means is to be very fond of. Now let me give you the classical illustration concerning this. It's in the last chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. I turn to it in order that we may have the notion clearly in our minds. You remember the incident when Peter and the others had gone fishing and they come back and they see our Lord on the seashore and there he is cooking this breakfast for them and then he begins to speak for them, to speak to them. And you remember this is what we read. So when they had dined, verse 15, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Now then, when Peter says there, Thou knowest that I love thee, the word Peter used was, Thou knowest that I am fond of thee. Our Lord asks him if he really loves him, with the third word to which we haven't yet come. But Peter replies, Thou knowest that I am fond of thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, Lovest thou me? 
He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Which means, thou knowest that I am fond of thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Then we come to verse 17. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Now here our Lord does a very interesting thing. He doesn't use the word he'd been using before. He uses the word that Peter had been using. He says, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, are you really fond of me? He's lowered the conception. Art thou really fond of me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Now Peter has gone up here. He no longer says, Thou knowest that I am fond of thee. He's gone to a higher level. Thou knowest that I love thee. But let's keep these things in mind. The word translated as love may mean being fond of. But there is this third word. The highest word of all translated as love. And this is the word that is always used in the Bible to express God's love to us. God so loved the world. Agapas. Now this is the love which is used in our text this morning. Husbands, love your wives in that sense. Love as God loves. There's nothing higher than this. Or to put it in another way, you remember the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22. The apostle is contrasting the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Not that erotic thing. Not merely being fond of. No, no, this love that characterizes God's love. Love, joy, peace, and so on. Now then, that is the love which the apostle says here that husbands should have and show towards their wives. And you see how it all links up so perfectly with the 18th verse. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And if you are filled with the Spirit, you'll be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now he's addressing people who are filled with the Spirit. They alone can do this. It's no use saying this to a man who's not a Christian. He's incapable of it. He cannot love with this sort of love. But the apostle says that Christians are to manifest this kind of love because they are filled with the Spirit. So one of the ways in which I show that I'm filled with the Spirit is not that I speak in tongues or go into ecstasies or manifest certain phenomena in meetings. No, no. It's the way I behave towards my wife when I'm at home. It is this love which is the fruit of the Spirit. Very well, now then, the very word that the apostle selected leads us immediately into the whole notion that he is anxious to convey. Let me put it like this, therefore. Let's try and get this whole question of marriage and the married relationship into focus. I am not saying that the apostle is teaching here that that first element which belongs to the flesh should not come in at all. That's very wrong. You see, there have been people who've taught that. The whole Roman Catholic teaching concerning celibacy is ultimately based on that. And there are many Christian people, I find, who are in trouble over this. They seem to think that the Christian person is no longer human, no longer natural. 
and they regard sex as evil. Now, that is not only not Christian teaching, it is error. It is wrong. It is to come in. Man's a man. God made him thus. God has given us these gifts, sex included. There is nothing wrong in the erotic element in and of itself. Indeed, I go further. I say it should be present. I'm elaborating this because I am so often in a position when I'm asked to deal with these things. I have met, I have known Christian people who very honestly, because of this wrong view of sex and of that which is natural, even in the life of the Christian, have more or less come to this conclusion that any Christian man can marry any Christian woman. You see, what matters now is that we are Christians. They do away altogether with the natural, but the Bible doesn't. No, no, though we are all Christians, it is right that we should feel attracted more to one than to another. The natural comes in, don't exclude it. We mustn't ever take up that position that any one of us could quite rightly marry another. You might live together, but that, that's to exclude this natural. Now, I was at Payne's last Sunday morning and the previous Sunday morning to show that the Christian teaching does never do away with the natural, with the way in which God has created us. And God has created us in that way, that one feels an attraction to another more than to another person. And, by, and, and it's mutual. And that is perfectly right. Don't do away with that. That's being assumed here. The apostle is assuming that this man has married this woman because they were attracted to one another. Because, if you like to use the current phrase, they fell in love. Christians should do that like everybody else. This is not something mechanical. A Christian doesn't say, now I'm a Christian, I'm going to look round and decide in cold blood. That's not, that's not biblical teaching. Well, you can laugh at it, my friends, but I can assure you that there are many Christians who have acted on that very principle. I am speaking out of pastoral experience. And they're very honest people. Regarding sex as evil, they get into this false position. No, no, we're not to exclude the natural. The apostle is assuming that this man and this woman have felt this mutual attraction. They've been drawn together on that basis. More than that, he's assuming this, that they're fond of one another. What I mean by that is this, that they like the companionship of one another. Now, let me emphasize again that that is to come into Christian marriage also. There are certain natural affinities, and we ignore them at our peril. Again, I've often seen this. Two people have imagined that because they're Christians, everything's going to be all right, and they get married on that basis. But you know, it's very important in the marriage state that you should be fond of one another. If you're not fond of one another and have married on the basis of the first thing only, it'll soon go. That has no permanence in it. This is one of the things that has permanence. You're fond of one another. There are certain imponderables in this married state. It's good that people who are married should have the same affinities, the same interests, should be attracted by the same things. It doesn't matter how much they love one another. If there are fundamental differences in this respect, it will lead to great trouble. The problem of married life and living in harmony will be very much greater. It's very important, I say, that this second element, the word that Peter kept on using, I am fond of thee, 
should come in. No, the apostle is assuming both of those. You see, these people had got married while they were pagans, probably. And they got married because of those two elements. All right, says Peter. This is where Christianity comes in. Now, because you're Christians, the other element comes in. And it lifts up the other two. It sanctifies them. It gives a glory to them. It gives a splendor to them. That's the difference that Christ makes to marriage. It is only the Christian who is able to rise to this level. You see, you can have happy and successful marriages without this. They do happen still, thank God. There are happy marriages on the normal, the natural, the human level. And they are based on the first two words which I've already been using. If you get the first plus this fondness for one another and a certain temperament, it can be a very happy and successful marriage. Yes, but it will never rise to this other level. And this is where, P where the Apostle Paul wants us to come to. That over and above what is possible to the natural, there comes in this true love, this love that is in God. The thing he talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. Very well, the apostle, you see, in choosing his word, has told us a great deal, hasn't he? And every husband in this congregation must examine himself in the light of this word. Are the three elements present in you? Is everything crowned and glorified by this love that can be used even of God himself? But lest we be in any trouble, the apostle comes down and gives us a further illustration in the second point he makes, which is this. Husbands, love your wives even as, even as, Christ also loved the church. Now then, you see, he's anxious to help us. The very mention of the name Christ leads him at once to elaborate the whole thing. He can't just say, even as Christ loved the church, he must go on and say, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. He says all that to help the husband to love his wife, as he ought to love his wife. Why then, I say, does he elaborate it like this? Well, I think there are three main reasons for that. He wants, first of all, every one of us to know Christ's great love to us. He wants us to realize the truth about Christ and ourselves in our relationship to Christ. Why is he so concerned about this? Well, his argument is this, you see. It is only as we realize the truth about the relationship of Christ to the church that we can really function as Christian husbands ought to function. You notice he puts it at the end by saying, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. But why is he speaking concerning Christ and the church? Why has he led them into the mystery? In order that husbands might know how to love their wives. And that is where these glib and superficial people who, who jeer at doctrine and, oh, they say those people, they're only interested in doctrine. They're, we are the practical people. You can't be practical without doctrine. 
You can't love your wife unless you understand something about this doctrine, about this great mystery. Ah, said people, it's too difficult. I can't follow all that. My dear friend, if you want to live as a true Christian, you've got to follow it. You've got to apply your mind. You've got to think. You've got to study. You've got to try to understand it. You've got to grapple with it. It's here for you. And if you turn your back on this, you're rejecting something God gives you. And you're a terrible sinner. To reject doctrine is a terrible sin. You mustn't put practice against doctrine. You can't practice without it. So the apostle takes us, takes the trouble to elaborate this wonderful doctrine about the relationship of Christ and the church. Not simply for the sake of doing that, important though it is, but in order that you and I at home may love our wives as we ought to love them, even as Christ loved the church. Well, very well. Let's look at it like this. The controlling principle, therefore, in practice is that the relationship between husband and wife is the same in essence and in nature as the relationship between Christ and the church. How do we approach it, therefore? We approach it like this. We must start by studying the relationship between Christ and the church. And then and then only can we go and look at the relationship between the husband and the wife. That's what the apostle is doing. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Then he tells us exactly how Christ has loved the church. Now then he says, do go and do the same. That's, that's your rule. So our first big doctrine is, you see, there are two big matters here. First, the relationship of Christ and the church. Secondly, coming out of it, the relationship of the husband and the wife. We can only start this morning with the first. The relationship of Christ and the church. Here is something that all must listen to, not only husbands, but everybody. What we are told about the relationship of Christ and the church is true of every single one of us. Christ is the husband of the church. Christ is the husband of every single believer. Now, you say, where do you find that? Well, I find that, of course, in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 7, verse 4. Listen. Wherefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him which, who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Christ is the husband of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. Every one of us can in that sense look upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our husband. And collectively we do so as members of the Christian church. What does he tell us about this? Well, the first thing he tells us, of course, is about the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. How he looks upon her. Here's instruction for husbands. What's your attitude? How do you look upon your wife? Well, now he tells us some marvelous things here. Christian people, do you realize that these things are true about you as members of the Christian church? Look at the characteristics of our Lord's attitude towards his bride, the church. He loves her. Even as Christ loved the church, yes, but what an eloquent expression. 
He loved her in spite of her unworthiness. He loved her in spite of her deficiencies. You notice what he's got to do with her. She needs to be washed. She needs to be cleansed. He saw her in her rags, in her vileness. But he loved her. Here's the height of the doctrine of salvation. He loved us not because of anything in us. He loved us in spite of it. While we were yet sinners. He loved the ungodly while we were yet enemies. In all our unworthiness and vileness, he loved us. He loved the church, not because she was glorious and beautiful, no, but that he might make her such. You see the doctrine? You see what it's got to say to husbands? You come up against difficulties, deficiencies, things that you feel you can criticize. But you're the love as Christ loved the church. That's the sort of love. No, that's the first principle. The second is this. He gave himself for her. He was not only ready to sacrifice himself for her, he even did sacrifice himself for her. That's Christ's love for the church. He could only save her by giving his life for her. And he gave his life. That's the characteristic of his love. Then you notice his great concern for her and for her well-being. He is looking at her. He is concerned about her. He sees the possibilities as it were. He desires her to be perfect. That's why he goes on to say that he might sanctify her, cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present him her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You see, his interest in her, his love for her, his pride in her. Those are the characteristics of Christ's love to the church. This great desire, I say, that she should be perfect. And he's not going to be satisfied until she is perfect. He wants to be able to present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He wants her to be perfect, beyond criticism. He wants the whole world, as it were, to admire her. So we are told, we were told in the third chapter of this epistle, in verse 10, something like this, that he's done all this to the intent that now, and to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, might be known by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. You see, it's the pride of a bridegroom in his wife. Proud of her beauty, proud of her appearance, proud of everything. And he wants to show her to the family, to everybody, the pride of the bridegroom in his bride. That's the sort of relationship that exists and subsists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. I'm taking the principle, you see, out of the details first. Because it gives us an understanding of this wonderful mystical relationship. And so the picture is of our Lord rejoicing in the relationship, happy in it, triumphant in it, glorying in it. There's nothing that he won't do for her. 
Now there, I say, is the first big matter that emerges in the Apostle's treatment of this great and exalted subject. We've got to start with this picture of Christ and the church. You see how he looks upon her. What he does for her because he looks upon her like that. What he has in view for her, his ultimate objective. And because of all this, the relationship that exists between them. This extraordinary notion of the mystical relationship, the unity, that they're one flesh, that she's his body, and so on. Well, very well, we can't proceed to consider that this morning. But I do trust that you've got an outline clearly in your minds. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Very well, there's our first great principle. Christ loving the church. The relationship between Christ and the church is that which is to be between husband and wife. So start with that. Look at the great doctrine of the church. Come all of you, married or unmarried. This is true of all of us. We are in the church. Very well, we are in this relationship to Christ. That's how he looks at you. That is his attitude towards you. You see, this principle is this. This love, this agapas. This thing which is altogether above the erotic and the philanthropic, as it were. The great characteristic of this, and this is where it's essentially different from the others, is that this is not so much governed by desire and to have as to give. God so loved the world, how? That he gave. Now there's nothing wrong with the other types of love, as I'm saying, but you see, put them at their best. They're always self-centered, aren't they? They're always thinking of themselves. But the characteristic of this other love is that he doesn't think of itself. He gave himself. He died for, even unto death. Sacrifice, that's the characteristic. This love is a love that gives isn't considering what it's going to have, but what it may give for the benefit of the other. Husbands, love like that. Your wives, even as Christ loved the church. We've looked at his attitude towards the church. We shall then, next Sunday, God willing, go on to show how that attitude manifests itself in practice. And then beyond that, to its ultimate objective, and finally, to the mystical relationship and union. Well, thank God that when you come to consider something like marriage, so common, apparently so ordinary, you see that if you're a Christian, you have to consider it in such a way that brings you into the very center of Christian truth, into the heart of theology and doctrine into the mysteries of God in Christ as seen in and through the church. May God bless the consideration to us.
Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.